What does biblical justice look like in our society? Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. A very special guest on the podcast this time is Michael Rhodes, who's just published a new book with InterVarsity Press, IVP America, called Just Discipleship, Biblical Justice in an Unjust World. Michael is a lecturer in Old Testament at Kerry Baptist College in Auckland, New Zealand. He's the author of several books and numerous articles in magazines like Christianity Today and The Biblical Mind. And Michael has spent more than 14 years in community development and urban ministry work and is an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And I should say that Michael hails from Memphis, Tennessee. I can't think of anybody else who hailed from Memphis, Tennessee. Michael, hi, how are you? I'm good, Brent. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's great to have you in New Zealand as well. Welcome. And I gather you've been here how long? About a year? Yeah, we just celebrated our one-year anniversary uh, living here in Auckland, and it's been it's been fantastic. Hard to be away from home and a big shift, but uh, it's a really beautiful country, a lot of really beautiful people. Yes, I've never been to... Um, one of the places I'd love to visit when I visit the States again is, is Memphis. Hmm. Um not the least because of certain musical connections. Which That's right. <laughs> Blues and rock and roll, all the good stuff. Absolutely right. Don't forget uh, talk- barbecue. <laughs> and a good barbecue. That's right. And all that wonderful southern food, which I've never experienced. And anyway, let's get on to the subject of the book. How has your childhood and background in Memphis influenced this book? Yeah, so my um, background in Memphis is all over this book. I, I, I was raised in a really lovely church where my parents met. Um, that taught me to love Jesus, that taught me to uh, believe that life is found in Jesus and that uh, life is found living as a citizen in Jesus' kingdom. And that the way you figure out what citizenship in Jesus' kingdom looks like is in the Bible. And they got that into my bones. And um, those are two of the primary commitments of my life. But I was that church was also, you know, when I was born, like 20 or 30 years into a serious awakening to the fact that our congregation had been on the wrong side of uh, white supremacy of racial injustice against black people. Memphis is a majority black city, a majority poor city. And we were in um, a white majority white church, very affluent church. And in the fifties and sixties, we'd been in an explicitly segregated church. And so one of my heroes from that, that world, you know, wrote a book called recovering from racism. And that's kind of how our, the mood that our church was in. And so um, I got exposed to people who loved Jesus and loved God's word, but said, hey, look at all this stuff about the poor. Look at about all this stuff about the immigrant. Look at all this stuff about the outsider um, that you guys aren't talking about. And so that really reshaped my life. So it, that got me on the trajectory of of wanting to be involved with with Christian uh, ministry of and among the poor, which I got into community development work in Kenya and then later in Memphis. Um, so we were in in living in a low-income community in Memphis for 12 years. And one of the beautiful parts of that journey is we were, I was ordained at a church plant in our neighborhood, uh, planted by that church that raised me. And so, yeah, just feel like a, 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 a child of Christians struggling with our troubled legacy in a place and striving towards a Jesus-centered, justice and mercy-centered way of living the Christian life. So yeah, mm. that, that's, that's it's all over the book. Um, and some people even, I, one of my fears, even in the States, to say even more so this would be the case in Aotearoa, New Zealand, is it could feel like the book is all about, you know, black-white stuff. And that's not um, because I think those are the only justice issues. It's just the the practical issues I engage really are the ones that emerged from our, primarily from 
our my wife and our family's 12 years living in this one South Memphis community. Well, brother, we have our own issues of justice in New Zealand with our, our Maori people, as as you will be well aware. Yes, we, we are, we're all in the, this boat together. Now, what's the story of justice in Scripture? Because it, there is a story of justice in Scripture, isn't there? Yeah. It runs right through it. Yes. Uh, one of the things I love is uh, in Matthew when um, uh, Matthew saying, you know, Jesus is doing all this stuff to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes a passage in Isaiah that says that the servant that God sends will bring justice to victory and in him the nations will put their hope. And what Matthew's doing is he's situating Jesus at the turning point of a biblical justice story. So Matthew is inviting us to read Jesus within the grand sweep of Scripture and to hear the grand sweep of Scripture's story as a justice story. And if you go back to the beginning, you know, God's rescue plan for the world after the disasters of Genesis 1 through 11 starts in Genesis 12 with this calling of a people. And, you know, what is the point of this people that God calls? And God tells Abraham right out of the gate, uh, I'm calling you, I'm going to bless you, but through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And oftentimes we talk about that, that the people of God are called to be participants in God's mission, to be vehicles of God's blessing. But what's interesting is God shows up to Abraham and reiterates that call on the people of God several times in Genesis. And in Genesis 18, he adds a, a new element. He says, I have chosen Abraham to teach his family the way of the Lord by doing justice and righteousness so that I might bring about all that I have promised him. In other words, one of the ways that God's people are going to be a conduit of blessing, a vehicle of blessing to the nations, is by living out God's just and righteous life. And if you look at the Psalms, the reason why God is so obsessed with justice and righteousness for his people is because it's at the center of who God is. Uh, justice and righteousness are the foundation of your throne, O God, the psalmist prays. Or the Lord loves righteousness and justice. And so um, we get this idea that the people are called to live this just and righteous life. God's laws are, are, are guidance as to how to do that. But of course, uh, Israel, like all of humanity before them, um, finally fails. And so you get Isaiah 5 is like the undoing of that Genesis passage. Isaiah says, the Lord had a vineyard and he planted it and it came to look for fruit and he got bad fruit. And it's like, oh, you don't know what the parable means? I'll tell you. The vineyard of the of the Lord is the, is the people Israel and he came looking for justice, but behold, injustice for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So the whole story of the Old Testament is people called to live out God's way, this just and righteous way, and ultimately coming up short. And then Jesus comes as the one who fulfills Israel's story and humanity's story, bringing justice to victory. And it's really important that we don't end the story there, because then having brought justice to victory in his own life, Jesus breathes the Spirit on the disciples and says, as the Father sends me, so send I you. So the story is of a people called to live out God's just way, failing, Jesus coming to turn the tide and restoring this called people to be a community of blessing to the world, to creation, to the nations, in part by living out this just way. So that's that's a, a very quick long but quick uh that's the long short version 
of the justice story in the Bible as I as I read it. <laughs> thank, you, thank you for that. Yeah, and we're, I'm going to come on and uh, talk about, I want to talk about the Psalms in a, in a moment, but I love the way yeah. you piece all this together and you've got various things you you focus on throughout the book and I'd, I'd love to focus on two or three of those things. Deuteronomy, yeah. can we start with Deuteronomy? Yeah. What's the importance of eating and feasting in Deuteronomy and how is yeah. feasting, because I found this absolutely fascinating, how is feasting linked to law and to justice? Mm. Mm. Yeah, great questions. And I should say that, you know, one thing that I try to do in the book in a, in a brief way is just to say, we often we debate about what justice means, and it is sort of a, a macro concept in the Bible. It means a lot of things. You know, justice and righteousness are sort of a shorthand for all God wants of us. But, you know, if you look at passages like Job 29, where it, the focus is on what justice and righteousness does, it's on things like, adopting the orphan, delivering the widow, going to court with the stranger. You know, Job says, I was eyes to the blind, feet to the blind. So it's it's uh, the kind of one angle on what justice is in the Bible is what John Golden Gay says. It says it's about the faithful exercise of power in community. Okay. So so that's the kind of definition or, or angle on biblical justice that I emphasize the most. So what does eating have to do with the faithful exercise of power and community? Well, you know, I think in, in our world, um, Christians have kind of woken up to the idea that we're supposed to care about justice. And we've also woken up to the very biblical idea that justice is uniquely interested in the poor. You know, if you ask, if you look at justice and righteousness texts in the Old Testament, the orphan, the immigrant, the widow, and the poor, they're always hanging out around those texts, you know, because the faithful exercise of power in community is often about welcoming, caring for, lifting up those who are suffering in the community. So what does that have to do with eating? So Deuteronomy has all these laws, and Deuteronomy tells us in um, Deuteronomy 4 that, that the laws are going to, help Israel live the kind of life where the nations look over the fence and say, oh, look at those people. You know, what other nation has such wise and just laws? And what other nation has a God who's so near to them when they pray? So what are the nations going to see? They're going to see the people's proximity to the Lord, their intimacy with God, and they're going to see their just and righteous way. And the law, the guidance that God gives, his instruction can help them give this. So in 14, Deuteronomy 14, God gives them a law about tithing, which is like no one's favorite law, you know. <laughs> I always picture, you know, I mean, when I preached at our church on tithing, you know, you could hear the groans, you know. Um, but Deuteronomy, <laughs> Deuteronomy 14, yeah, as soon as they see the text, you can feel the groans, you know. Um, but in Deuteronomy 14, and it's like that ancient world, tithes were basically taxes. So in Deuteronomy 14, God says, Hey, I want you to bring your tithes to me, and I can hear the Israelites being like, "Ugh, you know, uh, this isn't good." And I want you to bring the firstborn of all your livestock to me, like, "Oh, this is, you know, we know where this is headed." And then God says, "I want you to bring them to the sanctuary, and I want you to eat them, all of them." And I can see the people going like, "Wait, what?" And then God says, "This is in fourteen twenty-two through twenty-eight." Says, "If it's too far for you to get there, sell in the village your tithe in the first place. Come to the sanctuary, buy whatever you want." And the Israelites are thinking, like, well, I can't really mean that. And then God says, no, I'm serious. Like, wine, strong drink, meat, whatever you deeply desire, buy it and feast on it with me. And you do that by household. And, and what God's saying there is, I want you to come and be near to me and experience my generosity. That I'm the kind of king who gives all that you owe me back with interest, you know, to bring you joyful, intimate life with me. And you can have whatever you can put whatever you want on the menu. But there is one requirement. 
probably two, God says in Deuteronomy 14. Um, you have to eat with me and you have to eat alongside everyone in the community that I invite. Because in the household in Deuteronomy, it's not just you and, you know, your mom and dad and your brother and sister. It's you, the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, the debt servant, they all come. So it's this picture of this like massive feast that the whole community eats with God, where they experience the joy of life together with God. And 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 I think this points to like a biblical idea that runs all the way through from beginning to end. That the first thing the people of God have to offer the pre- people who are struggling is welcome into the community itself. Like it is welcome into the it is the the generous festival life of the people of God at which people who are shamed, humiliated, ostracized, mistreated, oppressed in the community have an equal seat at the table. That's our sort of frontline defense against injustice, which is ironic because so many Christians, like if you go to a church and you start talking about the poor, immediately people start talking about what are we doing out there, which is so telling because sometimes, as I say in the book, the poor are no longer with us. (laughs) <laughs> and middle-class churches and spaces. So if we think care for the poor, like, oh, we got to go somewhere else. But in the biblical vision, the oppressed, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, they're always with you, among you, and and they are becoming family at this table. You know? Yes, that's if churches have welcomed them. I mean, <laughs> someone that was told at Bible college, don't spend your ministry worrying about the poor, they'll drag you down. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> That stresses me out so much. Well, you're not going to hear that at Kerry. Uh, no, it wasn't at Kerry. Don't worry. No, no, I, 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 but what's, inter- what's interesting is that that so so um, an Aussie, uh, Mark Glanville, my friend Mark Glanville, who's in Vancouver now, um, he did his his PhD research on the immigrant in Deuteronomy, and he says what's happening at these meals is people are becoming family. Yes, you know? they're becoming fano, right? And Deuteronomy shows you exactly what it means to become family in the next few verses. So the 42, 22, 27, feast with the poor. The next few verses, except for every third year, take your tithe, store it up in the village. That's emergency food relief for the orphan, immigrant, and widow all year long. Then it moves straight from that to Deuteronomy 15. Every seven years, forgive debts so nobody gets trapped in poverty. And if that makes you not want to make loans in the first place, well, the Lord is speaking to you. Be careful lest you have that wicked thought in your heart, you know, and you withhold freely lend, freely forgive. So the, the family that you become at the table is a family that eats together and then figures out how everybody eats all year long and figures out how everybody has access to the kind of work and land that they need to provide for themselves all year long. So Mm. structural justice at the kind of emergency relief and at the systemic level flows out of the feast, you know? And Jubilee. And Jubilee. Your book deals splendidly with with Jubilee. I mean, what does does Jubilee teach us about justice? Yeah, so I, you know, it's funny, I have my... I have four children, uh, Isaiah, Amos, Nova, and Jubilee. So I have two prophets and an institution and a hippie, you know, those are kind of the names. <laughs> um, Nova's named after a dear friend, but I love Jubilee. And the reason why Jubilee is named Jubilee is because I, I was walking out of a, you know, being up front, giving a talk on Jubilee when my wife Rebecca was pregnant and she came up and she was just crying. So we've got to name our girl Jubilee. So it's a really moving text for us. And I think it points to like, okay, if you're Israel's vision in the law is like, okay, if you're hungry today, what does the people of God offer you? 
inclusion in the family that eats together. If you're hungry today, what does the family of God offer you? Emergency food stored up in the village through the third year tithe. If you're a, 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 if your household, if your family is struggling because your farm is falling apart, you know, what does the people of God offer you? Loans to help you get back on your feet. Forgiveness of those loans in the seventh year. What happens if everything goes sideways? If a household completely loses their land, they get driven off, they've got nothing, they go into debt servitude in another's house. If, if you know, if the wheels go off, none of those social support uh, strategies work. It's just meltdown. Um, the year of Jubilee says every 50 years, every family gets to go back to their family farm, no matter how they lost it. And so you get this vision that God's God has this vision of an egg, every vine and fig tree economy, right? And every vine and fig tree economy, an economy where every household has their feet firmly planted in the land. They're connected to the kinds of economic assets that allow them to provide for themselves, to be neighborly, to bring a plate to the feast, you know, and everybody gets a farm. And then if people lose it, no matter how they lose it in the 50th year, the year of release on the day of atonement, when you announce the forgiveness of sins, you release these debts and everybody gets to go back. And so you see this, like the great lengths that God wants his people to go to to attack multi-generational poverty at its root. The idea that there will be a permanently poor class, which of course is what you know you run into in our South Memphis neighborhood. What we saw was people who generation after generation were experiencing grinding poverty because of injustice, because of racism, because of all sorts of structural forces. They're sort of permanently stuck. And the Bible says, we don't want that. Yes, I think it's, it, it seems to be structured into the modern economic thinking, doesn't it? So there's always going to be an underclass, let's just accept it, um, which yeah. is not a biblical view at all. In the time no. we've got left, Michael, because time yeah. is ticking away, um, <laughs> uh, you're such an engaging interviewee. Joseph and Daniel. Now, I can't resist asking mm-hmm. you something about Joseph. Your your chapters on Joseph grabbed my attention because um, mm-hmm. you, you have quite a bit to say about Joseph's famine relief program, if we can put it yes. like that. Now, yes. <laughs> It's a bit dubious to say the least. What are the possible? I mean, I like Joseph, but you know, what yeah. are the what are the possibilities as well as the pitfalls of the Joseph approach? And how does the Joseph option compare, say, with the Daniel option? Because you deal with yeah. Daniel as well. Yeah. 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 So in the book, I'm talking about what does it mean to be just disciples, disciples who do justice, and we talk about these biblical ideas in the book, but also very practically what they might look like in our world. So I just want to give a nod to that. But as I get to the end of the book, I start saying, well, how does the people of God relate to the political structures around us? So we can think about how to do justice as individuals, as families, as churches. What does it look like to think about justice when we have influence in our political communities? And, you know, a lot of times when Christians think about that question, they go straight to Romans, they go straight to Revelation, you know. Um, But both Romans and Revelation were written to people who were not participating in political leadership. Uh, you know, the Roman Empire was not asking them to contribute to how society was run. If we want to look for people who had direct engagement with political power in that sense, we have to go to the Old Testament and two figures that we might run into are Joseph and Daniel. And so Joseph is a really powerful figure. He's he's a figure that we love who experienced enormous suffering from his family. He was a marginalized migrant uh, Potiphar's wife and the people in the in the prison 
exploit him partially because he's an ethnic outsider, you know, and he's a guy who, who, who seems to forgive his brothers by the end of the story, you know, so for a lot of good reasons, Christians love Joseph. But I think if we want to think about his politics in Egypt, uh, Genesis also hints that there's another and darker side of the story. Um, because we, we hear Joseph's plan when he's talking to Pharaoh, hey, we're going to store up stuff and we'll have food to help when people are hungry. But in Genesis 47, it tells us how he does that. And what Joseph does is he basically uses the famine to enslave the Egyptians. So he starts out by saying, okay, come buy food that we've stored up. And they buy food. And then their money is gone. And they come and they say, oh, well, we've got livestock. Can we sell you that? He says, okay, well, buy buy your livestock for Pharaoh. And then they come back. They got nothing but their land and their bodies. He says, okay, we'll take your land. And we'll take you, you know, we'll take your the whole community as permanent debt slaves. Now, what's interesting is that we know that in Egypt, this was the political economy, that Pharaoh technically owned everything. And the entire Torah law sets up a system that says, don't be like that. And what's interesting is that in Genesis 47, we discover that one of God's people, Joseph, helped Pharaoh become like that, helped Egypt become like that. And what's particularly interesting, you know, some people say, well, desperate times call for desperate measures. This chapter in 47 shows Joseph is treating his family in a completely opposite way. So while he uh, saves the Egyptians by taking their land and enslaving them, their land, their livestock, and, and and, and their bodies, he saves his family by getting them land for free, by getting his brothers to be caretakers of the flocks and herds that are being expanded through Joseph's acquisition of them in relation to the Egyptians. And so um, I think that Joseph, you know, sets up a system that we, we have serious questions about and that I argue in the book in some detail. Genesis wants us to have questions about this because in the book, in Genesis 47, when it's talking about the land that Joseph gets for the Israelites, everywhere in Genesis, it's Goshen. You know, they're going to go to Goshen, 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 Goshen. But then like one time in Genesis, it calls that same good land Ramses. Which is interesting because the next time we hear about Ramses, we're hearing that the Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, who enslaved the Egyptians, used them to build Ramses. So Genesis is giving us a little hint. This is working well for the Israelites now, but those who live by the political sword end up dying by the political sword. You know, build your kingdom here with Pharaoh's power now end up building Pharaoh's kingdom at your expense later. And so I think Pharaoh, uh, Joseph gives us this picture of, of and I don't think Joseph's a villain. I don't think he's necessarily trying to, to perpetuate this kind of injustice, but I do think he gives us a picture of what happens when the people of God try to use political power for our own purposes, and particularly when we try to prioritize what's good for us rather than what's good for our neighbor. You know, and I think Christians in the West have often done that. We've tried to get political power. We've wanted to do good, but we've sort of put our our good ahead of others. And I think that has been deeply costly to us. And I think Joseph's story helps us see that. If we have time, we've got, think, we've got, we've got about four minutes. Do you want to talk about okay, so, Daniel and the? Yes, yes. So, so I think if you read Joseph's story that way, it's a bit of a warning when it comes to politics. It's really interesting because Daniel, the book of Daniel clearly wants us to think about Daniel's story in light of Joseph's story. And it contrasts Daniel and Joseph in any number of ways. But here's the headline. 
Uh, when Joseph goes to work, I mean, for the Pharaoh, everything he does, he never confronts the Pharaoh. There's no tension between the Pharaoh. It's all easy breezy from there. When Daniel goes to work for Nebuchadnezzar, he's in constant conflict with the powers. He's being thrown into jail. His life is being threatened. He's facing the lions. You know, it's very difficult. And one of the reasons is because Daniel is constantly resisting. And in Daniel chapter four, working with Nebuchadnezzar, right, he's involved. He's in the cabinet, but also resisting and and confronting. And this comes to a head in, in Daniel 4, when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, I'm the tree, I'm going to get chopped down. He tells Daniel, hey, will you come Will you come um, uh, interpret this? And Daniel says, oh, I wish this was for your enemies, because it's going to get really bad for you, Nebuchadnezzar. You have not accepted God's sovereignty, but here's what you do. If you want your reign to be extended... Do justice by showing mercy to the oppressed and atone for your sins by doing righteousness for the poor. In other words, Daniel takes those primary virtues, justice and righteousness, that the law fleshes out among the people of God and says to Nebuchadnezzar, those apply here too. They apply specifically to the poor. And if any kingdom, any kingdom in the land or outside of it, giving acknowledgement to Yahweh or not, wants to flourish, this is the path. So he he, uh, in a way that sets him apart from Dan, from Joseph, he both cooperates and criticizes and confronts out of a life deeply shaped by the Lord, his relationship with the Lord, and his sense of Scripture's demand for justice and righteousness, particularly for the poor. And I think that gives us some really promising avenues for thinking about how to live justly in our political lives today. Yes, I mean, I love, I love Daniel. There's so much to learn about uh, mm. the, the art of compromise and when we compromise with political powers and, and even in work situations. I've got some time left. A couple of random questions or one random question. Uh, if there's a Christian business person listening and they're thinking, okay, how do I apply all this in my workplace with my employees? What, what are some, let's get down to practical brass tacks. What are yes. some of the things they could do? Yeah, I do want to say that um, my friend Robbie Holt, Brian Fickert, and I wrote a book called Practicing the King's Economy that specifically addresses this issue in a lot of detail. Um, and this is a question that's really close to my heart, because if if justice is about the faithful exercise of power, one place we have power is in our economic lives. And business owners, man hiring managers, these people have a lot of power, complicated power, but they have a lot of power that they can exercise. The first thing I would say is you can figure out how to use that power faithfully in community and that be central, important justice, Jesus work. And, you know, in my world, I, I've worked with a lot of Christian business leaders in my work back home in Memphis. And, and you know, we would be asking questions like, well, what does it mean to exercise power faithfully in the way we pay people, right? Are Christians paying uh, people, particularly people at the bottom of the compensation pyramid in ways that celebrate their dignity, that that embrace generosity. You know, we point to the gleaning laws, you know, which is this idea that if you've got a farm, uh, you leave the edges unharvested for the poor. Translation, leave some profits in the field. What does it look like to be above and beyond in terms of compensation? And compensation could be income. It could be funding people upskilling through training. It could be caring for people's work-life balance. You know, there's lots of stuff. Who are we hiring? You know, like in, in my world back home, there was real issues in underemployment and unemployment, depending on the economic cycle. You know, the labor market's been pretty tight of late. But often a lot of people, particularly people with low education, people with 
uh, uh, legal trouble in their background and um, people from, uh, well, in, in Memphis would be black folks and Latino folks. Here, I imagine, um, I know, Maori and Pacifica and other migrant communities struggle with employment disproportionately. So we could ask, are are we intentionally looking for ways to include people in our workspace that might be being left out in society? And you can think about the stuff that you make and the stuff that you build and the stuff that you design, right? Like we have a massive housing shortage right now. Like one reason why you have a skyrocketing cost of living, as I understand it, among many reasons, is a shortage of housing stock. And so if you're anywhere adjacent to the building trades, figuring out more about the housing crisis and how you can, this is the way I like to think of it, proactively bend your work towards God's kingdom, right? Um, in small, substantive ways. I just think that this this is a life-changing deal. And remembering that, that most of us spend most of our time at work. So even just the thing of, if you're creating a culture that of flourishing and life, you're treating people like people, I mean, that also is an act of, of justice. Um, so I think there's myriad ways. And again, uh, in Price and the King's Economy, we talk about a lot of specifics, but I, I just would love People in it, wherever they are in their workplace, in their life, and in their church, thinking, okay, justice is about the faithful exercise of power and community. Is it about structures and systems? Yes. And we should think about that. But where does it land in the place that I have immediate influence to use the power that I have through my talent, through money, through through connections, through social location? How do I use what I've got more faithfully in this community and especially for the orphan, the immigrant, the widow, the poor, the outsider, you know? Yep. Ab absolutely. And we're not good at doing that. We're not good at um, no. often practically applying these biblical principles into everyday life, are we? Well, I think we've been taught, I think we've been taught that work is work and faith justice is faith. You begin yeah. Yeah. with the money that you make from the work. So we talk about generosity occasionally, which is great. The Bible has so much to say about being generous with the money that you've earned. But if you look at the Bible, the Bible sees every aspect of life as an arena in which we can celebrate God's goodness and love and mercy and joy and justice. And that means not just what do you do with the money in your pocket, but how do you treat the people that you make that money with? How do you treat the land, you know? Um, we're in the middle of an ecological crisis that has humanitarian implications. How do we treat the land and other creatures well in our business activities, in our income activities? That's that's part of justice. How do we treat customers and suppliers and our neighbors? And and I mean every you know um, I'm a Presbyterian, so we love to quote Kuipers. There's not one square inch in all of creation over which the Lord does not say mine. You know, and that means in every moment in ways big and small and in, in ways simple and complicated, we can be saying, what does it look like to bend this part of my life towards God? And to, and if we bend it towards God, we will often find ourselves bending it towards justice. And if we bend it towards justice, we'll often find ourselves bending it towards sacrificial connection, care, um, sharing, uplift, solidarity with the poor. Yes, Michael Rhodes, fabulous, fabulous time. Thank you so much. There's so much more that we could talk about. Gosh, well, I, could, uh, I, I could talk. I could talk to you for hours. I just <laughs> I, and and the book is fabulous. It's from IVP America. It is is deep and rich, and will make you think. Uh, just discipleship, biblical justice in an unjust world. Michael Rhodes, who's yes. a lecturer. 
Sorry, Michael. Yeah, sorry. Before we sign off, Brent, can I just say love for people, your listeners to know about the book, but also love for people to know about at Kerry, a lot of this content and much other content besides yes. is yes. coming out and we've never been more accessible at Kerry. So um, come check us out as well. I'll put a link to Kerry. Yes. Well, yeah. I'll put a link to Kerry on the on the podcast link underneath the, the podcast when it drops. Yeah. I was going to say, Michael, lecturer in Old Testament, Kerry Baptist College in Auckland, New Zealand. Yay, he's in New Zealand, which is where I am. Michael, blessings for your ministry and your teaching. May you be richly blessed and your family. May you richly be blessed and your students as well. Thank you so much for your time. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and to take care of things behind the scenes. Michael, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Brent. It's been really fun. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.